Thank you, Brandon and praise team. Have you thanked Jesus lately for the blood applied? You could not atone for your own sins. You could not save yourself. But God did something on your behalf. He sent His one and only Son. The blood. We think about the blood and sometimes Christianity is accused of being a a bloody religion. When sin entered in, there had to be a payment. And the blood represents life. Death brought sin. Jesus gave his life. He poured out his blood so that sins could be forgiven. And if you have placed your faith in his death and his resurrection, and you have confessed him as Lord, you're in his family. The blood's been applied. The price has been paid. We never outgrow that. We never outgrow the gospel, that good news. We just grow deeper and deeper into that good news. 1 John chapter 2. Turn with me in your Bibles. One of the ways that we know the blood has been applied, one of the ways that we know we are children of God in the family of God is if we love our brother. If you love your brother. Stand with me and let's read 1 John 2 beginning in verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You may be seated. Let's pray together again. Father, we know that your word is true. Sanctify us by your truth this morning. Show us more of who you are. Show us even as we look in this mirror this morning who we are and whether or not we are in you. I pray that you will equip this body of believers to love one another and and in turn love the people around us where we work, where we go to school, where we live. We pray that this body would be known for not only loving you, but loving each other. Equip us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this may not be the way that you want to start every sermon, but we're going to start with the test this morning. 
You've got a 50-50 chance of passing this test. It's true false. Some of you loved those kind of tests in school because you knew at least you had a shot. Now, the the fill in the blank was a whole different story for you. I I, I get that. But true false, we're all okay with that. Now, think about this question this morning. Is it, it is easy, it's true false, it is easy to love a brother in Christ. Now, if you think it's easy, raise your hand. True, it is easy. Okay, if you think it's false, raise your hand. All right, well, I think we probably can make a case either way, but the answer is false. False. Some may be easier to love than others, but we all have this natural tendency to compete and to compare and to try to put ourselves above other people. We still live in the flesh. We live in the world. We have an enemy around us who's constantly causing division and problems within relationships. We're sinners and we're selfish. And the correct answer to that question is false. So it is not easy to love a brother in Christ. In some ways, it's like the marriage adage that we use Remember, it's not love that really brings you to the marriage altar. It's love that you commit to at the marriage altar. We're going to find out how much you love this person once you get married, right? It's easy. In most circumstances, it's easy to get to the marriage altar. And we don't really realize how selfish it is in our going to the marriage altar, but it's what we're basically getting out of it. But once we get married, we realize, wait, this isn't that easy. And this isn't all about me. And when I make it all about me, I really mess up the relationship. And so even as a person who's a part of the family of God at Lawndale, part of our church family, sometimes when there are difficulties and decisions and differences and conflict, we say, wait a minute, isn't this the church? Aren't we all supposed to get along? Isn't this supposed to be easy? And I would say to you, no, this is life. These are relationships. We're sinners and we're working this out together. And sometimes God is using that conflict to grow our love for him and for each other. You think about it in your marriage. Those of you who are married, there was conflict in your marriage and you either had to decide to cut and run or how you were going to live with this person. How are you were, how are you were going to learn how to love them and what love really is. Because again, sometimes we get confused with what love is. I'm supposed to feel good all the time. Uh, it's supposed to be perfect and easy. And of course, we all know that that's not what love is. And so for us to grow, God allows us to go through these opportunities with each other to really show our love for him and our love for each other. Now, loving your brother, loving the family around you, the spiritual family around you, is both a moral test and a social test. Now, we said John's going to keep circling back on these three themes. Uh, It's between light and darkness, moral test, between love and hate, a social test, and truth and error, the doctrinal test. Now, this loving your brother falls into at least two of those categories. So loving your brother 
The reason it's in part a moral test is God has commanded us to do it. It's not an option. God didn't say, well, love your brother if he deserves it. If he straightens up. If he acts right and flies straight. You know, then love your brother. No, he's commanded us, love your brother. Again, we can keep this marriage analogy going. didn't say, husbands, love your wives whenever they're lovable. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That's, that's sacrificial. That's not dependent on her. Wives, uh, respect your husbands only when he's not acting like a jerk. It, it's not in the text. It's just there, and it's, it's a matter of obedience. We're doing it out of honor and love for God. That's why we're obeying. And so when we love each other, it's not because we deserve it. I, I can tell you there are plenty of times I don't deserve it. And I can tell you there are times you're not going to deserve it either. We're, we're just commanded to do it. It's, it's a moral test. Am I in the light or am I in the darkness? Am I going to obey God or am I not? But it's also a social test between love and hate. Those who are walking in the light not only obey God, but they love each other. There, there is something drastically different about someone who's been changed by the love of God. That is, they begin to love the people around them. God changes their hearts. He begins to do things. How we treat others comes back to the fact of, do we love God? It's a social test. Do I love God enough to love the people around me? Now, as we look at our text this morning in 1 John 2 and verse 7, we get our first point. The commandment to love your brother is old and new. You might have picked up on that as I read through the text. Wait a minute. You said, John, it's an old commandment. And then you said, John, it's a new commandment. And he did say it was both of these. And so the commandment to love your brother is old and it's new. It's old because you had it from the beginning. If we were to flip back to Leviticus 19, in the law of God, as God was instructing his people in how to live in in the beginning, in uh, Leviticus, we see that God said, love your neighbor as yourself. This isn't some new idea. Jesus came on the scene saying the same thing when he was asked, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? In Matthew 22, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says he fully knew the law, knew what was important. And he knew loving each other was extremely important to his Father in heaven. We've, we've had it from the beginning. It's not a new idea. It's also old because it's the word you've heard. When you go back to the Ten Commandments, there's not one of the ten that says, love your neighbor as yourself. But there are six of the ten that show us what loving your neighbor as yourself looks like. Remember those first four are all about God. Uh, You should have no other gods before me. Uh, You should not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. You should not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The first four are about who God is and loving him. And then the next six are about loving your neighbor. I, I thought it was interesting. I picked up one of the children's bulletins this morning. And on this, uh, Ashley wrote the Ten Commandments on the front of the bulletin. Now, remember last week we talked about if you keep his commandments. 
You know, you know you're in Him. You know you're in the family of God if you keep His commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. So it's one of those points of grace that God gives us to say, you can have assurance of your salvation if you're obeying God's commands. We don't obey God's commands to get salvation, but it's, it's a, a point of grace from God to assure us we are in the family of God as we're living out our faith, as we're obeying His commands. And I thought Ashley did a great job of writing out those Ten Commandments last week. But you, you see those next six that start with the home. Honor your father and your mother. And you can just keep going all the way over to you shall not covet. And all of those have to do with loving the people around you. You see, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the word you've heard from the beginning. Even Paul made reference to how the law is summarized by love. It's God's intention. In Romans 13, listen to how he put it in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So it's that word that we've heard. It's completely in line with all that we know about God and what God has revealed about himself. And so the commandment is old. But as you move into verse 8, again in 1 John 2, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it's new because the true light is shining. Jesus has come on the scene and shown us to a greater degree than we've ever seen what love is. We, we've seen it play out in many situations through history, even in the Old Testament era. But never before has the world seen love like love was shown through Jesus himself. He's the true light. He came and put deity and love alongside of human flesh. He lived it out. He fleshed it out. He showed us what it was like. And we can go back to some of John's earlier writings in the Gospel of John, like John 13 and verse 34. Listen to how he describes this kind of love. John 13, verse 34. A new commandment. See, he's using that same verbiage. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, that's, that's the difference, isn't it? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Someone rightly said, I think, that the golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus said that in Matthew 7. It's quoted there. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Golden rule. The platinum rule is do unto others as Jesus has done unto you. It's not contradictory. It's just saying there's a whole different level there. When you begin to treat people like Jesus has treated you, there's a lot more grace. There's a lot more forgiveness. There's a lot more understanding. When we realize this is what Jesus has done for me, and just as he's done for me, 
I'm to in turn do for others. It's new because the true light is shining. Even over in John 15, again, we're looking back at the gospel. Listen to what he said in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. What a different way of looking at life to love people as Jesus has loved us. We see life in a whole different way. It's natural for me to give you what you deserve. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I mean, that's just human. It's natural for us to do that. Give people what they deserve. But we're trying to think differently about life. I don't, I don't live according to what I feel and what's been done to me. I live according to the commands of God and how he's commanded me to love my brother. It's almost like driving a car. And Do we have any 16-year-olds who recently gotten their license in here? Okay, I see absolutely no hands. Nobody's going to admit it. Okay, I got a hand over here. When we're leaving today, watch out for this guy. Um, you, you see, when somebody gets their license, oftentimes they have no idea of the whole driving thing. You know, they've taken some classes, but... But, you know, I've heard of a number of, of teenagers, once they are, are driving, all of a sudden this all light comes on, you know, and they're thinking, what's that? And they have no idea that the all needs to be added to that. Now, I can make a little bit of fun of that because when I was a teenager, I blew up an engine. <laughs> I didn't know, I, you get in and you, you put the key in and you turn the car on and you go. Every once in a while, you got to stop and put a little gas. I did know that. But I didn't understand all the working parts of that and what was going on inside of that in, engine. And, and for some, you pop that engine and it's a whole new world. Wow. There are parts in there. and Man, you, you mean you got to maintain that thing and tune it up and... It's, it, it, your, your eyes are open if all you know is looking at that outside and putting that key in that ignition and getting the, the car cranked. If that's all you know and you popped up the hood, it's, it's like opening up a whole new world. When Jesus came to live here on earth and living according to love your neighbor as yourself, it was like, wow, is, is that really how this thing works? Is that really, you mean the gas flows through that engine and you mean there are electrical currents that, I mean, I, it's, it's amazing when you really understand the mechanics and the dynamics of, of how that car runs and the love that Jesus has. You, you see, we can, we, we're supposed to take this lifetime that we have and learn and grow deeper in what that love is. Meditate on the gospel. Think deeply about what Jesus has done for us, that he shed his blood. I mean, we, we sing about it, and, you know, I, I've been a believer since I was 11 years old. I, I firmly believe at 11, I placed my faith in Jesus. I knew I was a sinner. I knew he had died for me. I knew he rose from the dead, and I, I knew I needed him. I, I knew at that moment that I felt guilt and I, I felt shame, and I, I knew that I would not go to heaven when I died. I knew that at 11 years old, and I prayed, and Jesus, come into my life, forgive me for my sins. I commit my life to you. I, as much as an 11-year-old can understand that, I, I understood that. But I had 
no idea really what his love was at that point. I mean, I, I was grabbing it. I was getting some of it. But it's, it's been a lifetime. Uh, 30 more years or, or a few extra on top of that. <laughs> There's nothing greater than just growing deeper in that gospel. There, there are whole books that are written on gospel meditations on this idea of what we, we talked about with propitiation, and it's going to pop back up again. Here, here is me deserving the wrath of God because I've come short of the glory of God. I've sinned. I've crossed over the, the boundary. I've missed the mark. I, I deserve wrath and punishment, death and hell. And Jesus steps up and obeys the Father and comes to earth takes on human flesh, lives a sinless life, and dies in my place. He took my punishment. I mean, have you really grabbed what you deserve? Do you, do you understand as a follower of Christ how close you were to an, an eternity in hell? But Jesus took your place. The death you deserved... He died for you on that cross. and it's, it's that in of itself that deserves a lifetime of reflection and growth and processing and thanking God for what he's done for us. It's supernatural that we love our brothers because we can't do it in ourselves. You, you cannot love your husband, your wife, even your kids, even your neighbors, much less your church family without the help of God. We don't love because people deserve it or because we're able to do it. We love because we've been changed from the inside out by the love of God. And so instead of giving people what they deserve, now we give them grace and goodness and love and even if they don't give it back. Now, that's not easy. You reach out and you love someone and you're nice to them and, and then they're not nice to you. What's your first thought? Huh. Well, if that's how they're going to be, aren't you glad Jesus didn't treat you like that? Because the first time he came knocking on your door, you didn't say, Oh, yes, Lord, I'm, I'm ready, I'm good. Come on in, I, I'm ready for you to change my life. Most likely, most of you, he came knocking and you, tur- and you turned away and he came knocking again and you turned away. And then when that moment came and you surrendered your life to him, you still have had to surrender and surrender and surrender because dying to self isn't easy. Not because anybody deserves it, but because we've been given what we don't deserve. So it's the grace of God, listen to this, it's the grace of God to change hearts. Are you in the light or in the dark? Go back to our text in verse 9. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. It's pretty clear there. Who do you hate? Who, who do you have something against? 
Who are you holding on to a grudge with? Who are you angry with right now? Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Look, look even in verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. How can you live in grudges and hate and anger and bitterness? Well, you can't in the light. You'd get, you, you would live a painful, miserable life if you know Jesus and you're holding on to grudges and bitterness and anger and wrath. That, that darkness and that light don't mix. And when that light shines, it's painful and it hurts. And God's trying to bring healing. And it's a matter of surrender to him. It's the grace of God to change hearts. Are you in the light or in the dark? You say, well, I, I think I love people. Well, let's, let's do a test. This, this one, I'm not going to keep a score on. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's the love chapter. And here are people that are saying they're doing, they, they speak eloquently. They do wonderful works. I mean, Paul is saying, man, look at, look at these people but because they don't really have love, it doesn't really matter. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3? And this is what he says love is. Verse 4. Love is patient and kind. I mean, we can stop there, right? Is God, is God pressing you right now in the area of patience? Somebody's not doing exactly what you want them to do in your house. And you, I mean, you've, it's come out of your mouth. I am running out of patience. Oh, God's not through with you yet. What about that time in your house when somebody said something and you were offended and you, you barked? You bit their head off. Love is patient and kind. I mean, let's, let's bring it home to our spiritual family, our church family. Are you being patient with each other? Somebody was sitting in your seat this morning, right? <laughs> Somebody didn't look at you at the right way. Somebody didn't give you a bulletin when you came in. I mean, and I had to park way over here this morning. You know, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant, or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And of course, we could keep reading, but I, I've, got, I've got a lot of room to grow there. And so every time I'm getting squeezed, God's saying, Rodney, I'm helping you live in the light. Thank you, God. Right? Every time one of your children disobeys, it's an opportunity to teach and to show sinfulness and to talk about forgiveness and redemption. And every time we act in an unloving way with irritableness and anger, we're destroying our opportunity. And you can apply that in a million ways to your life. God's just giving you opportunities to grow deeper, to walk 
more boldly in the light. Every opportunity, every time you're squeezed, every time there's conflict and difficulty. And so the second part of that is the grace of God to convict hearts. You can't stay in the darkness when, you're, when you know the light. Are you stumbling? Is there the impatience? Is there the unforgiveness? Is there the selfishness? Because if you're stumbling, you're probably causing other people around you to stumble. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? In verse 10 of second, uh, 1 John 2, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. It's the grace of God to convict hearts. What God's doing is he's giving us assurance here. Am I really saved? Am I obeying his commands? Am I loving my brother? And you'll see in the next section, it's about truth and error. Do I believe? Am I holding to sound doctrine? So there's these tests that he's given us. And what a good God he would give us not to throw salvation out there and say, well, if you have it, you have it. And if you don't, you don't. And you have to figure it out all by yourself. But he's given us a whole book here to talk about assurance of salvation to see whether or not we're in the family of God. And I hope at your home you're working on memorizing the key text in 1 John. 1 John 5 verses 11 through 13. Let's do that together as a church family for just a second. All right, you guys know the drill. For you who are new, I'm, I'm one of the pastors, so that's my part. You're the congregation, that's your part. So let's see if we can do this together. And this is the testimony. Whoever has the Son has life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Excellent class. You're doing great. So the commandment to love is old and new. Secondly, the commandment to love your brother is for young and old. It's an interesting connection in verses 12 through 14. I, I, I don't know if I've ever heard somebody keep that as much in context as I believe it ought to be in context. That is verses 12 through 14. There are three categories of people that he's talking about, three stages of life. And I think we can take them chronologically. I think we can take them spiritually as far as maturity is concerned. I think that it goes hand in hand, but I also believe it reflects back, our spiritual growth reflects back to uh, the measurement of how we love each other. So it's very much connected here, this commandment to love your brothers for young and old. Now remember, age doesn't always translate spiritual maturity. I've met some students that I thought, man, the, this young lady, this young man, they're spiritually mature. They love Jesus. And they, they're growing in the Word. Some of you are doing an excellent job in your homes as you're raising and discipling and training these children and students. And some of them uh, are far ahead of me when I was in their age category because of the training that they're getting at home and the partnership even with the church and learning some of the things that they're learning. Age doesn't always translate spiritual maturity. Love does. How well are you loving the people around you? I, I think it's a good marker. Now, some say maybe there's just two categories, fathers and young men. Little children may refer to the larger group of the church. Really, all three of these, 
can fit any person who's a follower of Christ, but there's something said about each one of them that shows some level of maturity and what happens sometimes at those levels of maturity. So we're going to compare the chronological age and the spiritual age. So first, let's talk about the children that he refers to. Verse 12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now at the end of verse 13, he comes back to this category, I write to you children because you know the Father. In some respects, we could think about it chronologically as children they're, they're learning how to uh, obey and to be forgiven when they mess up. And part of our parenting process is to teach all of that when they're young. How to obey, how to honor your father and your mother so they can translate that over. And when they mess up, they learn forgiveness is genuine, it's real. Mom and dad doesn't hold that again. It's done. We, we've, you've confessed it, you're forgiven. And we began to translate that spiritually. You messed up, you talked to God, you confessed your sin. He's faithful and just, and He will cleanse you from all sin and all unrighteousness. And so in one sense, they've experienced restoration, children. Even the second statement, you know the Father. You, you've begun that relationship with your heavenly Father, but as many as received Him, Jesus, to them He gave the right to become children of God. They've experienced restoration. And although they might not be able to define propitiation, that the wrath of God has been satisfied and appeased in Christ, they've experienced propitiation. The blood has been applied and so we're, we're thinking about young believers, spiritually, who are getting this down and understanding justification and forgiveness and restoration. Now, he moves from the younger to the older. In one way, you might think, why didn't he just jump to the young men after little children? But verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers, the older group. Because you know him who is from the beginning. Now he says that at the end of verse 13, I write to you, excuse me, beginning of verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And it's that experience of fellowship with God. You see the forgiveness with the children, and we keep growing deeper and understanding that, but it's the fellowship with God that these older people who have been walking with God for a long time have begun to understand. Now, some of you in this congregation have been married for over 50 years. It's a, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. How many have been married over 50 years? Wow, wow. Now, I know all of these couples have been married over 50 years. They've just grown closer and sweeter and more kind and gentle. They've been growing in love, right? Now, not all couples who've been married for 50 years are kinder, sweeter, and more loving. You know, you, you can be married a long time and not really get what marriage is. Same way with the Christian life. There are people who can who could be in the church and confess Christ and maybe even be genuine believers but haven't grown a whole lot in their faith. But here he's talking about fathers who've experienced relationship with God. They've not only understand forgiveness, but they understand fellowship with Him. They know Him. They enjoy Him. They walk with Him. You see, fathers are able to reproduce. If you think about spiritual maturity now, they're, they're helping others to come along and walk with God. They're, they're making disciples who make disciples. But then you think about the young men. Notice what he said about them. 
uh, at the end of verse 13, or in the middle, I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. And then he says at the end of verse 14, I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. They've, they've learned how to fight the flesh and the enemy in the world. You see, there's forgiveness with that beginning part. There's fellowship the longer you walk with God. But in the middle of that's this battle of fighting sin and temptation and growing in your relationship with God. They've experienced resistance. And the enemy, he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy your marriage. He's after your kids. Students, if you have parents who are teaching you the word of God and praying for you regularly, thank God for parents who are fighting for you while you're learning how to fight yourself. If you have an older person who's mentoring and discipling and spending time with you, thank God for them. They're helping you to learn how to fight so that one day you'll be able to fight yourself and teach others. But they've young, young men, they're in the heat of the battle. And they're learning how to obey more and more. I would say to you, church, we're all, all of this applies to all of us at any given time. But you can see these stages of, of spiritual age. And it's compared to chronological age. And what should we do? We, we ought to be thinking the older to the younger in age and in spiritual maturity that, that we would pull for each other. We'd cheer each other on. We'd not gloat or be glad when somebody has fallen or messed up or made a mistake or didn't accomplish something. That we'd, be, we'd grieve with them. We, you see, we're pulling for each other and we're progressing with each other. That we would all keep growing and we're practicing serving each other and forgiving each other. You see, that's how families operate. When, when someone is a new believer and they come into the church and they see churches trying to get on the same page and you know you go through the normal relational conflict and, and they say ah, I thought this was a church and so well, well what about your house at home don't you guys have issues that you have to deal with from time to time and you have to learn how to get along and love each other well sure we do well God's house isn't any different we're, we're not perfect we're going to keep working and it calls for all of us to come together pull for each other, progress with each other, and practice serving and forgiving each other. If someone was not a Duke fan, years ago they learned to love to hate J.J. Redick. Any, any great Duke player, and nobody likes them, right? I'm, I'm not going to tell you who I'm a fan of. I will say this pains me to give this illustration, though. If you were a Duke fan, you loved him, and you played, and he played like a, like a Dukie, and he, he was very good. And he just retired after 15 years in the NBA, and he was looking back on his career, and I, I just thought it was so helpful, uh, even though I didn't like it, but I thought it was so helpful <laughs> what he had to say. He said, and looking back, I specifically think of my sophomore year. I hit a low point. 
I was in a fishbowl at Duke. I was not prepared as an 18, 19-year-old to deal with the pressure of playing at Duke, to deal with the responsibility of playing at Duke, to deal with the animosity that came my way from opposing teams' fan bases. I just wasn't prepared. I went south. I went into a dark place. And if it wasn't for Coach K, I would have never come out of that place He challenged me. More importantly, he forgave me. He forgave me as a 19-year-old for being a knucklehead. He gave me essentially a second chance. I'm forever grateful for that, and I wouldn't be the player I was today if it wasn't for Coach K and specifically for that moment. Isn't that a great story of a young man who could have packed it up and went home and been thrown out and cast out, but somebody who loved him and forgave him and brought him back into the fold? You see, there's a little bit of a a microcosm there of the church of what we ought to be like, pulling for each other, loving each other, forgiving each other, moving forward ahead because what we're doing is so much greater than just the immediate. It's it's for generations to come and it's for the, the kingdom of God and it's eternal. You see, it's not always easy to love people in a different age group. For children... We might make the excuse, if we're going to compare the difficulty of love for each day, for each stage, we might say, you know, they don't really know anything. They're, they're, they're just living in a land of la-la. They don't know a whole lot. So whether we say young people or young believers, we can't make that excuse for not loving them. For fathers, those are, well, they've passed their prime. You know, all they want to do is just have control. You know, that's, we can't make those excuses for not loving people, or for the young men. Well, they, they think they know it all. All the pride that can rise up in there. You see, we can make a lot of excuses for not loving each other, but if you walk in the light, you're going to love your brother. If you understand Jesus' love, you're going to love others with that same kind of love. Your treatment, your treatment of others in the church is evidence for or against your faith. How you doing, church? Jesus loves you with an everlasting love. His love is so full of grace and mercy and generosity. And if you don't know him this morning, we would love to help you start that relationship. Some of us will be available uh, up front. I'll be in Guest Central after the service. We'd love to talk with you about that. You can come to the altar. If you don't know Christ, you can come and pray and you can ask him to come in your life today, whether it's at the altar or in your seat. But church as a whole, is there enough evidence to convict us in our community by the way we talk, by the way we treat each other? Is there enough evidence to convict us that we're in the faith and we're walking in the light. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that even as we take it to heart this morning, that we'd not look at others and say, what about them? But we'd let you do your work in us. That in this moment, each one of us, Lord, help us to say, what about me? God, what do you want to say to me? What do you want to do in me? Help us to be children of the light, walking in obedience and love. In Jesus' name we pray.